Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast, check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the monthly newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. In this episode, we take a trip to an ancient cliff dwelling in Arizona to find out how these ancient people lived under pristine dark skies and what Tonto National Monument is doing today to preserve that night sky heritage. Our favorite NASA solar system ambassador, Ted Blank, is back to answer your questions and we'll finish off with a naked eye tour across the night sky. Are you ready? Let's get to it. I have a great fascination with ancient cliff dwellings. I try to imagine what it was like for those people to haul their food and their water and even their children up such steep inclines to get to their homes. Since most of them are in the American Southwest, I also try to imagine how they stayed cool during those intense, hot summers. And I think about how they had the best views anyone could imagine, perched really high in a cliff crevice. But I also try to imagine what it would have been like to sit on the edge of their little cliffside community at night and to look out across the expanse of the sky with nothing to block their view. How many stars could they see? What did the Milky Way look like to them? And how did their sky-watching activities inform them how they lived their lives? In tonight's podcast, we're going to get some answers to some of these questions with a visit to Tonto National Monument in Arizona. These cliff dwellings overlook Roosevelt Lake, but in those ancient days, it would have been a free-flowing river. Our guest is Steve Thompson, a park ranger at Tonto National Monument. Please join me tonight in welcoming Steve to the podcast. I am currently not in our my typical podcasting location. I am in Riverside State Park, which is west of Spokane. So since I don't get to record in my typical podcast studio, I get to hear uh, birds back here in the background, and we might have the friendly next door donkey show up and voice his opinion too. So, but Steve, thank you for joining me all the way from Tonto National Monument. It's good to have you with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation today. Let's start by having you tell us what is Tonto National Monument and who are the people who built it? So here at Tonto National Monument, uh, we primarily preserve and protect uh, two main cliff dwellings that are 700 years old, a, a little over that now. And the people who built the cliff dwellings, we refer to them as Salado. Uh, named after the Rio Salado or the Salt River that flows through the Tonto Basin, which is uh, right next door. So I've been there a few times and I've hiked up to those cliff dwellings. Can you tell us a little bit about what people would see when they come up to the cliff dwellings? What, what's in them? How big are they? How many people have lived there? 
if someone were to come here to Tonto National Monument to visit the cliff dwellings, uh, the primary one that people are able to experience is what we refer to as the lower cliff dwelling. It's a half a mile hike up to the lower cliff dwelling from the visitor center. It's a very steep climb. And so we definitely always recommend bring plenty of water and sun protection and someone to hike with. And when you go into the lower cliff dwelling, that structure, uh, when it was fully intact, was close to 20 rooms in size and would have housed anywhere from around 40 people to upwards of 75 individuals. And for each one of those rooms up there, that some of them would have been a single family apartment where probably three to four people would have been living. Of course, there were some communal spaces as well. And that's kind of where we get the numbers for the people living, at least in the lower cliff dwelling. Uh, the upper cliff dwelling, which is only available during the winter months. So like November through April, uh, via a guided hike that you make reservations for. Uh, that cliff dwelling is about twice the size of the lower cliff dwelling. So about 40 rooms in size and some larger communal spaces as well. Uh, and probably more than 100 people would have been living up there at its peak. So I have not been to the upper cliff dwelling. I imagine that it has just as great of views as the lower one. So explain to our listeners what they would see looking out from the cliff dwelling. Uh, the view from both the lower and the upper cliff dwellings are very similar, where you're looking out across Tonto Basin and Roosevelt Lake and looking north, northeast, out across the water towards the Sierra Ancha Mountains. And it is a gorgeous sight to, to behold. And the cliff dwellings are positioned in such a way that the front of them will receive early morning sunlight. So it's perfect during the winter months when it's a little bit chillier and you get that nice warm morning sun to get you going in the day. And then during the summer months, the hottest time of the day, the sun is on the other side of the cliff where the dwellings are sitting in. And so during the hottest time of the day, during the summer months, you're in complete shade and shadow. It's much cooler up there than in the direct sunlight. What do you know about what their connection was with the night sky 700 years ago? So what we know about their connection to the night sky around 700 years ago is a little bit limited just because it was so long ago and the people living in the cliff dwellings, uh, they didn't leave behind a written record or written stories uh, to help us understand it better. Uh, we do believe that uh, the night sky would have been used to navigate it, part of an extensive trade network in the Southwest and beyond. And we have evidence here at the monument and throughout Tonto Basin that these trade networks would even bring in uh, macaws from Central and South America. So these big, beautiful parrots that are red, blue, and yellow, very vibrant colors. We have found some of their remains uh, in the area, so evidence of that extensive trade network. And then some of the other things that we uh, can gather uh, is based on the stories and conversations that we have with the tribes that are living in Arizona and the Southwest. And those different tribes 
do have a strong connection to this site, uh, continue to have a strong connection to the, the place that we call Tonto National Mine. So how much has light pollution impacted the view of the night sky at Tonto National Monument in these more modern times? That's an excellent question. So we are fortunate to be a international dark sky park and we uh, take a lot of management efforts and policy to help protect the night skies that we have here. We have relatively dark skies, which is fantastic for stargazing and looking up at night. However, we do have a significant amount of light pollution that is radiating up over the mountains from the greater Phoenix Valley area. And so on certain nights, especially if it's even just a little bit overcast, uh, the light pollution from the surrounding communities can impact our viewing here. So it's not as dark as it would have been when the Salado were living here, but it's still pretty dark for how close we are to that major metropolitan area, uh, the greater Phoenix area. And then there's also a few communities around us, uh, such as Globe and even Payson, where we do get a little bit of sky glow, a little bit lower on our horizon. So I love that you guys are an international dark sky park. And I actually had the privilege of joining you guys when you did your, your big dark sky celebration shortly after getting that, that designation. So tell us, when did that designation happen? And what was it that sparked the idea to pursue it to begin with? Oh, fantastic. I'm glad that you're able to join us for those events. And we became an international dark sky park in 2019. And it was through a collaborative effort between all divisions and all staff here at Tonto National Monument and uh, with partnership with the International Dark Sky Association to make it happen. And really what it takes, uh, what it took here was not only that collaborative effort between our different divisions and staff, but the passion that our staff bring to preserving and protecting these places. And so this was another way that we were able to preserve and protect uh, this space and try and give people, uh, visitors and, and staff alike, an experience similar to what the Salado may have had experienced 700 years ago. So I know that some of the national parks in the national park system have this motto that says half the park is after dark. What does that mean to Tonto National Monument and what do you guys offer with that motto half the park is after dark? Yeah, uh, it's a fantastic motto The half the park is after dark at Tonto. The term means we have opportunities throughout the year to view the amazing dark skies from the monument. And year round, we offer a night sky viewing area near the entrance to the monument. It's a nice paved area where visitors are welcome to set up telescopes, binoculars, or just view the night sky unaided at any time. Uh, one thing to note about that location, uh, camping is not allowed. So if you're going to be coming to that spot to do some nighttime viewing, please don't plan on camping overnight. And there are a lot of camping opportunities in the adjacent Tonto National Forest. And historically, Tonto National Monument has partnered with local astronomical societies, clubs, and organizations to host 
almost bi-monthly night sky events. And these events range from having guest astronomers presenting on specific topics like meteorites in ancient cultures, nocturnal animals, space exploration, and even night sky photography. And these events would also include stargazing, junior ranger activities, guided hikes to the lower cliff dwellings, and the opportunity to look through some really amazing telescopes. And unfortunately, this past year, uh, we were unable to host these popular events. Like many, we are still determining the safest and most responsible way to move forward. And I always recommend people follow us on social media or check out our website for the most up-to-date information. And if you haven't checked it out already, there is a new National Park Service app where you can find a lot of great information and even a calendar of events for most national park sites. So when I was there, I think in January of 2020, before everything shut down, um, you guys had a ranger there. I think his name was Ranger Lane from Grand Canyon uh, National Park, I believe. And he did a star tour with a laser pointer. And I, uh, even though I've been into night sky stuff for a long time, it was the first night that I was able to see the Andromeda galaxy with my naked eye. And it was so cool, but that's because it was dark enough at Tonto National Monument to be able to see something that far away with my naked eye. So it was really, really cool. I loved that. Um, what can visitors expect when they plan to visit there? You've, you've talked about bringing water if you're gonna hike up to the dwelling. Um, and camping elsewhere, which by the way, I want to mention, I do have a blog post about visiting Tonto National Monument and it gives some links to uh, local campgrounds and things like that. So I'll put the link to that blog post in the show notes of this so that people can check that out. But what else can people expect? What are they gonna find when they come in the visitor center? Yeah, fantastic question. So part of, planning your visit to Tonto National Monument, you'll want to expect to drive a little bit. So it can take a little while to get here from most places. We are in a very rural place. So on average from the Phoenix area, it will take people around two hours or so to drive all the way out here. So that's something to always be aware of. Knowing our hours of operation, which we are open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., However, the trail to the lower cliff dwelling is open um, most of the year, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, this time of the year, because it is so hot out here, we do close down the trail at noon daily. And uh, that information is all on our website for reference. And with that climb going to the lower cliff dwelling, water, sun protection, hiking poles if you have them, uh, definitely have those things. And your hike does begin at the visitor center. So there is a fee to hike up the trail. It's uh, currently $10. Uh, or if you have a interagency America the Beautiful Park Pass, they'll get you in here as well. And inside the visitor center, there is a fantastic museum that has 700-year-old artifacts in it that were found here on site. Not only a variety of pottery, but also textiles. The people that were living here were great craftspeople and is some of the most intricate and amazing textile work that you'll see in the Southwest. And inside the museum, especially for those folks who may not be able to make it all the way up to the cliff dwelling, there is a replica room. So it's like basically a laser printed copy 
of one of the rooms in the cliff dwelling that you're able to walk into and you can see the handprints of the people that were building this place 700 years ago. And you can touch the walls in the replica room, but not on the actual dwelling itself. They're a little bit older and a little more fragile. I love the museum space that you guys have there. And it just has such great information about the area and the people who lived there, what it was like to live there. I, you know, for me, I visited other cliff dwellings as well. And it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around what that life must have been like for those people. So I love the things that you have in the museum to see the things that those people left behind and get a glimpse of that life. And it's so cool. And I also like that you guys sell uh, in the in the visitor center books about stargazing and you guys have some amazing books for kids about learning the night sky. So I think if people stop by there, they definitely need to check out those books too. Yeah, our partner association, the Western National Park Store, they do an amazing job uh, providing us with content and materials that visitors can, can purchase on site or online and to help retain some of their connection to their visit here or to our site. And yeah, we do have a variety of not only uh, books about stargazing, but we do have some sky maps as well. Where can people find your website online? So uh, if you type into any search engine that you use, uh, if you type in Tonto National Monument, one of the first links that will appear will help you. For those who like to type in the full address, it's going to be www.nps.gov slash T-O-N-T. So T-O-N-T is in the beginning of the word Tonto, right? Correct. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Night Sky Tourist. And I really hope that people plan trips to some of these dark sky places. I keep reading about how our, many of our national parks are overcrowded. And I think that places like, like Tonto National Monument often get overlooked and they're spectacular. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. It was a pleasure talking with you today. And I hope to speak with you again soon. And hopefully next year, we'll be able to host some of those celestial celebrations again. We love getting great night sky and astronomy related questions from our listeners. Each question is answered by Ted Blank, a NASA solar system ambassador. And our first question tonight comes from Debbie in Arizona. Hi, my name is Debbie and I'm from Fountain Hills, Arizona. What makes a meteor shower, and what's the best way to see one? Thanks for your question, Debbie. Before we can understand where meteor showers come from, we have to think about birthdays. Let's take yours for an example. Remember that our planet Earth is orbiting the sun at about 66,000 miles per hour. We have to go this fast since we have to get back to the same place in our orbit each year for your birthday. Well, during this race around the sun, Earth occasionally encounters the odd bit of space dust or small marble-sized rocks. As we smash into them, the force of friction with our atmosphere sets them ablaze. We call that a meteor. A meteor shower occurs when we run into a more dense cloud of space debris, which is usually the leftovers from a passing comet. 
Debbie, the best meteor shower I ever saw was under a moonless sky in the mountains of Albania. We were so far removed from light pollution that we enjoyed a stunning show from the cosmos. Our next question comes from Clarkdale, Arizona. My name is Hannah Lara, and my question is, what kinds of effects does the full moon or the new moon have on the Earth compared to the other times of the month? Hi, Hannah Laura. Thanks for your question. Other than inspiring poets and lovers, the biggest effect the moon has on Earth is its gravitational tug on our oceans, which produces the tides. The sun also tugs on our oceans and contributes to the tides, but since it's much farther away than the moon, its contribution is smaller. However, at the times of new moon and full moon, the Earth, sun, and moon are in a straight line. As a result, the gravitational pulls of the moon and the sun can add up. As a result, we get higher tides at these two times of the month than we do at other times. Hannah Laura, sometimes I try to imagine what life would be like if our months were actually in sync with the phases of the moon. Many ancient cultures lived like that, and in some ways, I'm really rather jealous. Thank you, Debbie and Hannah Laura, for your questions. If you have a question for our podcast, please record a voice memo and email it to us at nightskytourist at gmail.com. You can also visit nightskytourist.com slash podcast for more details and tips on how to send it. It's time for our tour across the night sky. Pause the podcast, gather everyone in your house, and I'll meet you outside under the stars. It is officially and astronomically summer, and right now the North Pole is tilted toward the sun, so this gives us longer hours of daylight and a significant rise in temperatures. Here in Phoenix, we've already hit 115 degrees, which means that it's still over 100 degrees after the sun drops below the horizon in the evenings. Nothing like sweating while you're trying to look at the stars. Let's start our tour by looking toward the west. See that really bright star? That is actually the planet Venus. Venus is so surprisingly bright that I frequently get texts and phone calls from friends asking me what it is. In fact, a neighbor texted a couple of weeks ago asking what that insanely bright thing was in the sky right after the sun went down, and I figured it was just Venus. But I went outside to unload my telescope from my car and I spotted something that I could not identify. It was much farther north than Venus, but this object was like two or three times larger and brighter and it didn't even seem like a perfect sphere. So I pulled the telescope out of the back of the car and I aimed it toward this bright object that didn't look like it was moving. I was so surprised when I looked through the eyepiece and I saw a massive white weather balloon. You can see my photo of it in the show notes at nightskytourist.com 17. Venus will be visible in the night sky through the end of December this year, and you can try spotting it with the waxing crescent moon each month because they are a beautiful sight together. We've said goodbye to Gemini, and Leo is now resting at the western horizon. And to the east of Leo is the second largest constellation, Virgo, or the Virgin. And we learned about Virgo and her ancient star stories in episode 14. Moving east from Virgo is the constellation Libra, the weighing scales. Many cultures around the world associated this constellation with justice. 
and east of Libra is the large constellation of Scorpius. When Scorpius is fully above the horizon, he's clearly seen as a giant scorpion in the sky. Perhaps you've heard it referred to by its astrological name of Scorpio. And if you are curious about the differences between astrology and astronomy, I've written a blog article about it, and you can check out the show notes for a link. One of the first things people notice about Scorpius is the bright red twinkly star, and that star is called Antares. It's often referred to as the heart of the scorpion, and it's the 15th brightest star in the entire night sky. It has a mass that's about 12 times larger than our sun. When you're looking at Scorpius, you're actually looking in the direction of the center of our Milky Way galaxy. In ancient Egypt, Antares represented the scorpion goddess, Serket, and it was the symbol of Isis in pyramid ceremonies. In ancient China, it was the national star of the Shang dynasty, and the Maori people of New Zealand regarded it as the chief of all stars, while the Kaori people of Australia knew Antares as the son of Arcturus, which is the bright star in the constellation Boötes. Scorpius is often intertwined with Orion in Greek mythology. In one myth, Orion boasted that he was going to kill every animal on the earth, and the goddess hunter Artemis and her mother Leto sent out a scorpion to kill Orion. When the scorpion won the battle, Zeus put Scorpius up in the sky. But in a different myth, the god Apollo, Artemis's twin brother, grew really angry at Orion because he claimed to be a better hunter than Artemis. So he sent a scorpion to attack Orion. And later, Zeus put both Orion and Scorpius in the sky, but they were visible at different times of the year, and they are never to be seen in the sky together. To this day, Scorpius remains more of a summer constellation, while Orion is a winter constellation, and we indeed do not see them together in the sky. To the east of Scorpius, we can see Sagittarius. In Western star myth, Sagittarius is a centaur, which is a half horse with the upper body of a man, and he appears to be drawing back an arrow in his bow, and it's aimed directly at Antares, the heart of the scorpion. Part of Sagittarius looks like a teapot, and if you were in a dark enough location, it would look like there was steam rising from the teapot's spout. That is the Milky Way stretching across the night sky. If you look north of Scorpius, you'll see a crooked square in the sky, and that's part of the constellation that is known as Hercules. To the east of Hercules is a bright star called Vega in the constellation Lyra. To the northeast of Vega is another bright star called Deneb in the constellation Cygnus, the swan. And south of Deneb is a bright star called Altair in the constellation Aquila. So if you could connect imaginary lines between Vega, Deneb, and Altair, you'll have found the Summer Triangle. The Milky Way runs right through the center of it, but unfortunately 80% of the people on Earth can no longer see the Milky Way because of light pollution. If you're looking in that area and it seems to have a hazy cloud streaked across there, you're actually seeing the Milky Way. And if you're in a dark location, no one is going to have to tell you that you are seeing the Milky Way. It will be fairly obvious. Don't miss our next star story where we're going to learn more about the constellation Cygnus. This 
This week's recommendation is a new book called Wild Nights Out, The Magic of Exploring Outdoors After Dark, written by Chris Salisbury. Although this book is actually written for a British audience, the concepts and the activities in the book will apply no matter where you live. The book is a hands-on guide to inspire both adults and kids to go adventuring outdoors at night, to discover the world of nocturnal insects and animals, to hear the different sounds of the night, and to engage with the night sky. In fact, he has an entire chapter about learning the night sky. Salisbury comments about how you can see farther at night than you can during the day. In fact, you can see astronomical distances. And the light you're seeing in the stars left those stars hundreds, thousands, and even millions of years ago to reach your eyes tonight. And who knows, but perhaps that star you're seeing actually exploded thousands of years ago, but the light from that explosion is still traveling to reach your eyes. So in a sense, when you go stargazing, you're truly looking back in time. Salisbury also gives some great tips and activities to help you get attuned to the dark with all of your senses. For a link to Wild Nights Out, check out the show notes at nightskytourist.com slash 17. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist podcast, Please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the monthly newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your question for a future episode. Thank you, Steve Thompson, for sharing about the amazing Tonto National Monument and for giving us a glimpse into the lives of people who lived their lives under the stars. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to other important resources at nightskytourist.com 17. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.